Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Today, we have reached a milestone and a turning point in our story. For this is Episode 18, Rise of the Republicans, ripe on to the election of 1856. The formation of the Republican Party was not, in itself, a terribly momentous event fraught with portents. Rather, it was a hundred small events and decisions spread throughout the country, but particularly strong in the Midwestern states. This represented a new shift in the way parties and the nation as a whole organized itself. Since the founding, the United States had remained oriented extremely strongly towards Europe and the Atlantic. Its power centers were located almost exclusively on the Atlantic coast. The nation was now changing, or had changed already. New cities and new regions took over the leadership of national affairs. The Midwest tended to think of itself as conservative in character, regardless of ideology and regardless of political affiliation, with vibrant local political scenes. Strong party organizations led staunch voter followings for both the Democrat and Whig parties regionally. However, by the 1850s, many of these regions were beginning to create new political identities that transcended old party boundaries, and these would in turn prove decisive in creating a new party out of the ashes of Whiggery. One of the strongest principles for Midwestern votes was that free labor ought not to compete with slave labor. In general, Midwestern politicians did not usually favor abolitionism even if they had anti-slavery views, and would not vote for symbolic attempts to end slavery. Free soil, however, was effectively a non-negotiable point. We could discuss the many factors that lay behind this, but in favor of not getting bogged down in the complexities of culture and contingent history, Midwestern settlers either came out of slave states, settling from the south along the Ohio, or northerners moving in from the Great Lakes region. To this, the influx of German immigration added much of today's uniquely Midwestern character, and all of these groups tended to mix, especially in the central portions of each state where the capitals all ended up. What is significant about this, and the reason I bring it up, is that not one of these groups particularly wanted slavery. Those who had come in from slaveholding territory often migrated in search of more available land and opportunities. Those who settled along the Great Lakes had many of the same views and opinions as inland Atlantic and New England regions. Not always abolitionist, but again, deeply suspicious of slavery and often helping escape slaves. Finally, the German contingent considered slavery outright barbarism and held a deep suspicion of slaveholders as well, seeing them as the same as European aristocrats. Not all of these peoples would vote for Republicans in the end, but they would not vote in favor of Kansas, Nebraska, which is where the seed of the Republicans found fertile soil. The only Midwestern state with slavery was, of course, Missouri. But even there, most of the state had few slaves. It lay directly on the knife edge between slavery and liberty. In the wake of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, a wave of utter outrage swept across all the North. Now really, when we say the North, we mean the Midwest, the Atlantic states, and the Northeast. For as discussed, these regions had, and still have, different economies, politics, and cultural trends. Across the board, Democrats, tightly associated with Kansas-Nebraska, found themselves kicked out of office in one of the most sweeping and destructive elections in American history. The party of Andrew Jackson and Jefferson and populist democracy found their majority vanish overnight, their congressional contingent cut by more than half. But rather than benefit from the tide, 
the Whig Party, now disintegrating from within, shrank to a meager quarter of their previous roles. In their places rose several new groups. Now this is when the Know-Nothings won their 50 seats. But another 30 went to the newly formed Republicans. Additionally, some other seats went to yet another party, the People's Party, who also would soon merge with the Republicans. Now, who were these Republicans? The answer to that is, in one sense, very simple. In another, it's tremendously complicated and the product of a considerable political ledger domain. The simple answer, and a fairly good one for the history books, is that the Republicans were a new party founded in a schoolhouse in Ripon, Wisconsin, on March the 20th, 1854. On that day, a loose coalition of free soilers, Whigs, and anti-slavery Democrats turned up and declared themselves a new party, and that was it. They neither needed nor received fanfare or cheers or thronging crowds. The world did not stop in this moment to stare in awe. Within just a few more months, however, many throughout the northern states started adopting this very same label. Although former Whigs could most easily switch over, it also allowed frustrated Democrats to join in without feeling as though they were compromising on other principles. Significantly, the new label itself harkened back to Thomas Jefferson's original Democrat-Republican Party, and the new Republicans indeed saw themselves as heirs of that legacy and protectors of free farmers. But their ideological success went far beyond that. Two features would distinguish the Republicans over the next few years. A strong flexibility of method that allowed for new party doctrines to emerge that well suited the growing nation, and the near-complete absence of Southern support. However, as we'll see, qualifiers to that last point exist as well, and the Republicans had future hopes in the South. Both the flexibility and the absence of Southern support, however, were not entirely separate. Since they did not pursue broad Southern political backing, and felt entirely happy to jettison any political plank for slavery except in the most grudging of fashions, the Republicans could also avoid all the fatal compromises that were breaking the Democrats and had already broken the Whigs. Indeed, far from dropping Whig principles, they effectively adopted the American plan so thoroughly it's hard to imagine Henry Clay himself having any criticism. At the same time, they picked up former Democrats and their votes by jumping feet-first into the pro-expansion and pro-growth policies of Thomas Hart Benton, just with a new anti-slavery twist. Additionally, since all that was required of a given Republican prospect was to view the extension of slavery as a fatal mistake, Republicans could also compromise productively on other sectional issues. This gave them at least something to offer to everyone, from Hoosier farmers to New York bankers to Massachusetts factory workers. You didn't even need to be especially anti-slavery in general, just oppose the extension of slavery in Kansas specifically. It was, in fairness, a single-issue party at first. But theirs remained one mighty issue. Holding firm to their course to the Star of Liberty, they could maneuver left or right as needed in the political moment. Yet again, the question arises, who were the Republicans? There are so many ways to answer that we can't possibly cover them all. However, we can look at the question from a variety of angles to get a grip on it. At its most basic level, yes, Republicans were all those voters demanding limitations on the extension of slavery. Free Soilers, of course, quickly joined the Republican Party. But moreover, outright abolitionists began looking at the Republicans with a certain amount of respect, or at least interest. Most Republicans were not abolitionists. 
But quite a few party men came very close to the abolitionist bar, and they were certainly much sterner against slavery than Ways had been. Nobody could accuse Charles Sumner or Sam and P. Chase of lacking anti-slavery convictions, and both quickly joined the Republicans. But class and region also played a role in Republican political identification. This brings us to a brief discussion of class politics in relationship to the United States. In the Midwest, the birthplace of the party, Republicans usually lived in the middle or northern ends of the states, had more access to rail service, and more economic ties to the urbanized east. They were, on average, young, but also possessed some level of property, social standing, or skills very valued in the labor market. Republicans were the kind of people with some amount of education, time, or energy, and who wanted to take part in politics. Western Republicans focused on wheat and dairy if rural, but also tended to live in booming cities like Chicago. In the East, Republicans had a somewhat different base, but not incompatibly so. Many of the basic attributes were shared, but Eastern Republicans tended to be a bit more inclined towards establishment Whig politics, or were tied in some way to the growing manufacturing economy. One of the biggest differences between West and East in this context was the kind of economic desires that each brought to the table. Eastern Republicans were more enthusiastic about the idea of a new national bank, internal improvements, and the promotion of manufacturing. In the Far West, however, Republicans wanted access to more land and rail connections to make it valuable. These goals were not seen as incompatible in this era, although a later generation might come to see it that way. Additionally, Republicans had at least a certain amount of sympathy in the burgeoning women's movement or movements. In this time, women's suffrage still lay well into the future, but educated women would swiftly become a mainstay of the Republican Party in their own way. At this time, women were often the social and psychological core of the family, and they took a great interest in the education, moral and otherwise, of their children amid rising prosperity. This definitely had an impact on voting patterns. In the North, women frequently took the lead in their own anti-slavery or anti-liquor societies, and both of those causes were at the very least friendly to the Republicans. One more regional group which bears mentioning was not part of the Republicans yet, but were at least Republican adjacent, and those were actually Southerners themselves. Throughout the South, large regions existed without much slavery, and the populations there often had similar views to those of Midwestern Republicans. Principally, these people lived in or near the Appalachians, and were frequently Scots-Irish in ancestry. Plantations were rare or non-existent among them, although unfortunately, poverty and isolation were not. They definitely had a material interest in the kind of internal improvements the Republicans might be offering, but in addition they had very little sympathy with slaveholder oligarchies. Just as a quick note so that they are not forgotten, there are other non-slave-owning regions in the South as well, including western Florida, northern Alabama, and even large sections of West Tennessee, plus other pockets too numerous to mention. All these might just become Republican voters. The possibility of making inroads into these regions was present, and given time, Republicans could wield the political lever reaching deep into the heart of the South. As we shall see in future episodes, this was a pathway that Southerners, both pro-slavery and against, began to recognize in the last year before the Civil War. The Republicans also saw a significant opportunity among immigrants, 
And here we need to cross over with the previous episode on the American Party to show the contrast, and to see how smart politics may override and diminish prejudices just as cunning and cruel politicians might exploit them. Republican leaders looked around and noticed that spread throughout the country were an awful lot of foreign-born Americans. We've discussed how the waves of European settlement sprinkled the nation with many new immigrants and led to a boom in the Catholic population as well. Republicans simply could not afford to lose some of these groups. To appeal to new citizens, and especially German immigrants, the Republicans struck a much more immigrant-friendly tone than the also-rising American party. Republicans needed these votes in order to securely win the Midwest, especially in the state of Missouri. And there was a real opportunity here as well. Immigrants to the Midwest were proud of their new nation and eager to see it succeed. Few, if any, held any love for slavery at all. And they would indeed prove a key Republican voting bloc in the future. Contrarywise, Republicans also needed to appeal to know-nothing voters. Almost from the moment the know-nothings began winning some seats back in 1854, free soilers of all varieties were looking towards making a political alliance with them. We've mentioned that the know-nothings still had fairly strong anti-slavery views, and their electorate was as anti-Nebraska as any other, perhaps more so considering their strength in Massachusetts and even New York. This provided an opportunity to unite the parties in some fashion one united party would become a stronger contender than dividing the anti-slavery vote in two, of course, but even a strategic partnership could work out. Other anti-slavery politicians, however, had more ambitious goals, and they set out to undermine the American party from within. Henry Wilson was one of the key figures in accomplishing this. Although largely forgotten today, Wilson was an early Republican leader in Massachusetts, after receiving the Republican nomination for the governorship, he immediately joined the Know-Nothings and arranged for them to receive his votes instead. Yet this was only a strategy rather than a change of heart, and in turn, Wilson received appointment to the Senate. He would stay there and serve his state for the next 20 years. At home, the Wilsonites did surprisingly little to further the goals of Know-Nothingism, but remained popular due to their strong reforms on nearly every other subject from economic rights to women's liberty. The American Party ended up withering on the vine and essentially converted to republicanism by default. The know-nothings were facing their own internal divide between the growing southern wing of the party, who refused to act against slavery. Meanwhile, Salmon P. Chase, another anti-slavery agitator and member of the Free Soil Party, managed to sweep the American Party into his fold in Ohio. The trick, essentially, was to gesture towards know-nothingism without actually binding oneself to their policies. Chase realized that if the American Party stalwarts voted for him, fantastic. But as long as they didn't vote Democrat, his election would be fairly secure. And so it was. Similarly, all across the northern states, know-nothingism quickly faded into obscurity and then irrelevance a mere two years after bursting on stage. Their voters first fed Republican strength separately, but the process always ended with a wholesale switch of know-nothing voters into actually becoming Republican voters and identifying as such. One final group that should not be forgotten here are African Americans. Their relationship with the Republican Party would become rather complicated and somewhat wary in the antebellum era, to say the least. Politically, the free population, as such, was not terribly influential and in most areas they lacked either the right to vote 
or the numbers to have a major impact on election. But where they could, it does appear that they supported the most abolitionist-leaning Republicans available. And Republicans were sweeping every anti-slavery party into their fold, so there were few remaining alternatives anyway. That does not mean that African Americans had no political feelings or beliefs outside of the Republican mainstream, however. Figures such as Frederick Douglass were capable of thorough invective delivered against Republicans as well as anyone. But he also frequently supported Republicans and tried to move them in his direction politically. In his own words, We shall support Fremont and Dayton in the present crisis of the anti-slavery movement because they are, from the very nature of the organization which supports them, the admitted and recognized antagonists of the slave power, of gag law, and the hellish designs of the slave power to extend and fortify the accursed slave system. It seems to us both the dictate of good morals and true wisdom that if we cannot abolish slavery in all the states by our votes at the approaching election, we ought, if we can, keep slavery out of Kansas by our vote. That naturally brings us up to the election of 1856, a frankly bizarre political contest between two of the most improbably different candidates in American history and also the hapless and really hopeless Millard Fillmore. The Democrats, trying to paper over a sectional rift, endured a rough convention as Southerners blocked Stephen Douglas again and again, but were themselves unable to renominate the ever-malleable President Pierce. The remaining Northern Democrats were, frankly, utterly furious at how they felt their interests had been betrayed. They wouldn't have Pierce now if he got down on his knees and begged. In order to resolve this dispute, all parties finally compromised on James Buchanan. Now, we've met Buchanan before, of course, but we should take a moment to stop and briefly look at his career. Buchanan entered the world all the way back in 1791, and he would become the last president born in the 18th century. He joined the House of Representatives in 1821, a rather young age, though not entirely unprecedented. This was only the beginning of a long string of successes for Buchanan. Among other things, he served in the Senate as an ambassador to Britain and a cabinet official for President Polk, as previously mentioned. By the time he had an opportunity to make a play for the presidency himself, he had decades of experience and a great many favors owed. He also happened to be out of the country during the last administration's foray into pro-slavery politics and therefore also managed to avoid all the bad blood associated with it. However, although Buchanan was respectable, he was also not really very well respected. Every step on the political ladder for him came with a certain amount of embarrassing failure, so that many party leaders questioned his good sense. On the flip side, the Republicans were the newborn underdog in this race, and they knew it. They therefore chose as their standard bearer not a seasoned politician, but our old adventurous friend John C. Fremont, just as Frederick Douglass indicated. The Pathfinder was more than 20 years younger than Buchanan, had almost no political experience, but he did have celebrity, fame, courage, and a measure of dashing charm to go with all of that, plus staunchly free-soil political opinions. He was, in a word, a surprisingly good candidate for the American political system despite having nowhere near the experience with Washington politics that Buchanan did. But in this era, presidential candidates who didn't personally campaign or make speeches. Most Americans viewed that as beneath the office and that made things much simpler for the relative newcomer Fremont. Additionally, Fremont represented California. This new and very large state had only a very small electoral impact at this time. 
But the symbolism of a far, far Western candidate would not be missed by any American voter. The choice was most likely a good one, and there were strong reasons for the Republicans to select as their very first candidate Fremont, or someone like him. Republicans were very focused on attracting young voters, and had an enthusiastic following among the middling classes in the growing nation. Fremont made a much more attractive choice for these groups compared to Buchanan. And he also embodied the ambitions of the nation with a youth and verve rarely seen in presidential politics. There were torchlight marches, popular songs, rallies, and speeches. Republicans paraded their voters under the banner of Free Soil, Free Men, and Fremont. And with the Pathfinder himself at their head, no one could accuse the Republicans of repeating the Whig Party's mistake in not pursuing expansion and growth. Indeed, Fremont might attract many of the same voters who had supported Polk all those years earlier. Fremont also held stronger anti-slavery views than Frederick Douglass credited, but this also tips into why Republicans were not yet a true abolitionist party. Mainstream opinion did not accept the federal government could interfere with slavery within a specific state, and constitutionally they were more or less right. Abolitionists demanded action anyway, or even held that the Constitution already banned slavery. This tension would never be entirely resolved until the ratification and adoption of the 13th Amendment all the way in late 1865 settled the matter fully and finally. On the other side of this political divide, James Buchanan, despite his less-than-exciting personality, had a few advantages to his own name. For voters looking to find a more conservative position that avoided the extremes of faction, he appeared ideal. Buchanan had many years of public service, in fact, he was actually nicknamed Old Public Functionary, but lacked a clear identification with any one branch of Democrats on paper. Or at least, not so much that Democrats across the political spectrum couldn't accept him. Indeed, he was the compromise candidate precisely because then-President Pierce had more or less demolished the Northern Democrats, and many voters hoped he could bring the factions back together. James Buchanan had one other advantage over Fremont as well. As mentioned, he had been largely absent from the country for years while serving in the prestigious position as Minister to the United Kingdom. He had no definite political position staked out on slavery or Kansas, and couldn't be very easily challenged on either point by anyone. Finally, Buchanan benefited from one last piece of good luck in his long public career. Although we've discussed that know-nothingism was already declining in favor of republicanism, that had not yet been completed. A substantial know-nothing party still existed in the North, and they nominated, of all people, Millard Fillmore. This divided the Free Soil vote, and it undermined Fremont, although it did not do any long-term damage to Republican prospects. On Election Day, this contributed to a very strong victory by the Democrats, who won with a third more votes than Republicans. However, a close inspection of the election results told a story that should have terrified the Democrats. Combined, the Republican and know-nothing vote totals would have comfortably quashed all opposition. Some of these voters might have been hesitant to vote for the relatively unknown factor of Fremont, and perhaps some might feel too conservative to vote for an outright anti-slavery party. Yet the shifting political winds were clearly visible to anyone who wanted to read them. Without the American party splitting the vote, the Republicans quite possibly would have swept all the free states and the presidency on the basis of the Electoral College. Given that the party itself had only come into existence two and a half years earlier, this made for a stunning show of strength. 
Although disappointed, Republicans also firmed up their position in Congress and set the stage for further success, while the know-nothings continued to dwindle. Republicans also built ties to anti-slavery Democrats too, so that even as a political minority they might well swing specific votes their way. If they could just bring together all of those anti-slavery votes for good, well, they had a mighty block to wield. But what could possibly bring all of those factions together if they were not yet united? Next time, we return to the national battleground of Kansas, the factor that will unite the anti-slavery vote when blood pours upon its sacred soil. Unfortunately for the United States, Buchanan's apparent moderation will turn out to be no more than a fig leaf covering a relentlessly pro-Southern and pro-slavery voice. Buchanan did not start the march towards civil war himself, but he will utterly fail to do anything to stop it. In fact, he will spend his term in office making every last problem far, far worse, and yet never once notice the destruction rushing towards him. Buchanan's weakness will light an inferno in the verdant fields of Kansas. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time.